Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. Tonight, we're joined by a panel of local citizens who participated in the Chronicle's SF Next project. We'll find out about the practical solutions they came up with to our city's biggest problems. The Chronicle's Jonathan Krim, who oversaw the SF Next project, will join us too. And we'll hear from the Bay Area sports guy, Steve Berman, who'll give us the scoop on the A's possible departure to Las Vegas, plus he'll weigh in on the latest with the Niners and Warriors. And we'll talk to local baker Azikwe Anderson from Rise Up Bakery. After a recent break-in, how's this bakery doing? But first, this news. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. Later on in the hour, we'll discuss the Chronicle's SF Next project, where citizens who love this city came together from different neighborhoods and ideologies to propose 10 solutions to our city's biggest problems. We'll also check in with Ezekwe Anderson from Rise Up Bakery about how his business is recovering from a recent break-in. But first, will the Oakland A's stay or go? That is the big question plaguing all devoted Oakland A's fans. And we have local sports journalist Steve Berman here to give us the scoop. So welcome back to State of the Bay, Steve. Hey, thanks for having me, Ethan. So, Steve, let's start with the A's about 10 days ago. The 30 Major League Baseball owners gave unanimous approval for the team to move to Las Vegas. Is there any chance at this point that the A's might still stay in Oakland? Or is this really the end of the Oakland A's? I think the probability is pretty high that they're leaving, obviously, because MLB has shown at every opportunity that they want this to happen. They want the A's to move to Las Vegas. They want to get this settled. They want the A's and the Rays stadium situations ironed out so they can expand to two more teams. However, we're still talking about John Fisher and Dave Cavill, and they have seemingly been at close to the goal line on a few plans that have fizzled. So you never know. There's also a ballot initiative by Schools Over Stadiums, a group in Nevada that is trying to get a ballot referendum to allow voters to decide in Nevada whether or not to give public money to this project. And uh, Commissioner Rob Manfred has said that that would be a big obstacle if that actually does occur. I don't know if it's going to. They already lost the lawsuit. But there's so many things that Fisher has done that haven't gone well that I still think there's a slight, slight chance, even though LLB really does want this to happen. And Steve, is there any chance that Fisher's doing all this to inflate the value of the team so that he could sell it the sort of pump and dump strategy? Because it doesn't seem like he's serious that serious about Las Vegas, given some of the issues you just described. And at the same time, he's not putting any effort in, as far as I can tell, to extending his lease in Oakland. So there's a question mark about where the team's even going to play after next year. Yeah, I've been actually told by someone who has some knowledge uh, internally that John Fisher doesn't want to move to Las Vegas himself. He likes living in San Francisco. And a lot of people have speculated exactly what you're suggesting, that it's a pumping up kind of thing and the value of the franchise will be raised. But the, the weird thing about that, though, is that he seems like kind of a stubborn guy in his business dealings. And if he wanted to sell, he could have just sold already. This is not a situation where there wouldn't have been buyers lined up. I mean, Joe Lacob has openly said, I would be interested in buying the Oakland A's if they were for sale. So I don't know if Fisher's is has a major plan of like, oh, I'm going to move to Vegas and then sell the team three years later. Or if he's like, okay, I'm so upset at the Bay Area for being mean to me. I'm going to take this team to Vegas and then see how it goes. I, I kind of actually am leaning towards that one 
even though a lot of people who are very smart believe that his plan is ultimately to sell the team uh, with a higher value in Las Vegas. And as I mentioned, they only have a lease through next season. What do you think is going to happen, the sort of next phase of negotiations with the city, potentially, or others, about where the team's even going to play? Well, I thought it was pretty funny. Dave Cavill, the ace president, essentially gave up the game when he talked to my colleague Evan Drellich of The Athletic. He said that uh, the TV money is a huge part of the situation, the local TV money. The A's get over $50 million reportedly from their deal with NBC Sports California, right? So the part of that deal Cavill said during this interview was that they have to play in the Bay Area to get that money. There's no TV deal for them in Vegas. And so that means that they cannot play in a minor league stadium in Nevada, in Reno or Las Vegas. And that also means they can't play in the Sacramento Rivercats ballpark either. So you have two choices. The Coliseum, extend that lease, or Oracle Park, if they can iron all that stuff out there. And Cavill also said during the same interview that they want to keep all the A's branding. So they don't want to change team names. They don't want to give up the colors and the team name when they go to Las Vegas. And the mayor of Oakland uh, has actually said that if we'll allow you to stay in the Coliseum beyond the lease that ends after the season, if you allow Oakland to keep the branding of the A's, Cavill said they're not going to do that. So that pretty much tells me that their hope or their plan is to play in Oracle Park after 2024, which obviously no one's going to go to those games. Not a soul. I mean, the Giants attendance is down, right? But that's 50 plus million dollars that they would get, and they don't seem willing to give that up. And you think the Giants would be open to hosting the A's there when they're not playing? Uh, I think MLB would just make sure it happened and make it kind of a sweet deal for the Giants. I think that if MLB said, hey, this is what you got to do to get this team out of town because they want the A's out of town too. And let's be honest, they they want this entire market to themselves. So I'm sure that, yes, they would be very friendly to the, and forthcoming to the A's if they wanted to play in Oracle Park. So A's fans have to be depressed at all this news. If a team does end up moving, what do you think is going to happen to those A's fans? Are they just going to ditch Major League Baseball? Are they going to become Giants fans? Probably depends on how old you are. I think if you're a certain age, you're probably going to either keep rooting for the A's and be quiet about it. And I think that's going to be a small percentage. A lot of people are just going to either stop caring about Major League Baseball in entirety or pick another team. But I do not think that there's a situation where there are going to be a lot of A's fans who are like, all right, we're going to follow you guys and we're going to go to A's games in Vegas. There are some Raiders fans who do go to Vegas, and but it's more of a nomadic team, at least in recent history. A's fans are not happy with this at all. So there's going to be nobody who's saying, oh, I'm just going to go to Vegas and make it a trip. No, if they're trying to get tourism dollars, it's not going to be from A's fans in Oakland. Yeah, well, we'll see how this all pans out. A lot of question marks as you've uh, just described here. But let's uh, switch and talk about football. The Niners had an excellent game on Thanksgiving Day, big 31-13 win over the Seahawks. They have a big game coming up uh, on Sunday, coming up against the Philadelphia Eagles the with the best record in the NFL. What are your predictions about how the team's going to fare against the Eagles? Uh, yeah, predicting this game is tough. I Look at the Eagles, and it seems like they just bumble their way through every game and end up winning. You know, against the Bills yesterday, they seemed like they were going to lose that game for a large portion of it, end up pulling it out at the end and over time. I don't think they're as good as they were last year. It seemed like they were more dominant on both sides in the trenches. 
And that essentially just destroyed the 49ers in the first part of the NFC Championship game because they could not block Reddick. Uh, I think the 49ers right now are rolling. They're going through one of their patented, oh yeah, we're kind of messing around for a little bit and now we're going to have a huge run for the rest of the season. They're in the middle of that right now. The thing is, though, is that the Eagles are going to be up, up, up for this game. Their fans are going to be up for this game. The 49ers did a little bit too much talking after losing the NFC Championship game. So you're not going to catch them unaware here. It's going to be, you know, it's the ga- it's the best game probably of the NFL regular season coming up here. And I do think the 49ers will end up winning because I do think they're the better team. I think they're the more talented team right now. But anything could happen and it wouldn't surprise me at all. Uh, well, hopefully we'll have the chance to see the team in the playoffs. And uh, I want to get to the Warriors before we end here. So they've been looking pretty mediocre this year. I think they're sub-500. Draymond Green was suspended for five games for putting Rudy Gobert in a headlock, uh, <laughs> that's, which is ridiculous to say, but unfortunately not surprising for those who've been following Draymond Green's career. What do you think of, of the team so far? I don't know. I, I think that the Draymond thing has been probably the story of this season. It seems like the Warriors are actually from you know, number one to number 11 or 12 on the roster are much stronger than they were last year. Their bench has actually been keeping them afloat in some games, even to the point where Steph and Clay got benched recently as they, you know, forced a big comeback against the Suns. I think that the fact that uh, Draymond's defense has been missing has really taken a huge piece of this team. It also has prevented them from being able to have Chris Paul be really with that second unit running them because Stephanie's Draymond to be able to play off the ball. I think it'll be very interesting to see what happens when Draymond is back and how the whole thing coalesces because I don't think, I mean, I don't, they're obviously not the favorites to be a championship uh, finalist or contender, but I don't think they're as bad as what they've shown over the last two weeks, which they look pretty bad. The other thing I would say though is that it seems like they are not the best coached team right now. They just sort of lose focus at different times of the game. We saw it against the Spurs, a very bad team. And they just stopped really paying attention to details at the end of the game and almost lost it. And so I'm wondering if there's some sort of lack of connection with the players and the coaches right now. We'll see, though. Draymond could come back in and be the glue until the next time that he messes up and goes after somebody and thinks about himself more than the team and gets suspended again. Well, and your take there on the team maybe not looking so well-coached is sort of counterintuitive given how much Steve Kerr has been really admired in the Bay Area. So that that would be an unusual thing, right, for Steve Kerr to maybe having having some coaching lapses, in your view? It is. It's, it's something that's not the most popular idea uh, among a lot of people. People do love Steve Kerr around here for obvious reasons, and he's won, I think, 10 titles as a player and a coach. Uh, I do, though, think that there seems to be some sort of lack of focus And yes, you can blame the players for turning the ball over too often. But I also wonder if there's something going on with rotations as well. Like for one thing, like I think Moses Moody should be playing way more than he already is. And Steve Kerr actually admitted Moses Moody should be playing more than he is. Also, Steve Kerr is on the last year of his contract. And I haven't heard a thing about negotiations or an extension or anything. So I don't know. Just my spidey senses are wondering, like, is this a Bob Myers situation where the whole year they go, oh, no, it's fine. We love Bob. He's going to come back. And Bob says, oh, it's great here. I love being with the Warriors. And then he bails. I'm wondering if this is the last year of Steve Kerr coaching. But yeah, there's just something seems off to me. Hmm. 
Well, and it could be a, a bit of a last dance situation. We've also, in the last year of Clay Thompson's contract, mm-hmm. do you think they're going to end up re-signing him? Well, uh, uh, I, w- I wouldn't put a lot of money on it right now. Just the way that he's been playing and what's been reported as what he wants money-wise. But also, I don't really know what other teams would value him as and how much money they would give him either. So, I don't know. But it's also, it's hard for me to envision a scenario where... Clay isn't with the team. Joe Lacob loves Clay. So I, I think they'll probably come to an accord at some point, but it's going to be a lot less money than Clay expected going into the season. Well, lots of excitement in Bay Area sports as usual. And thank you so much, Steve, for explaining all this to us and giving us your take on it. That's local sports journalist, Bay Area sports guy, Steve Berman, staff editor and writer for The Athletic. Thanks for coming on State of the Bay. Of course. Thanks, Ethan. And coming up next on State of the Bay, we'll talk to three San Franciscans who participated in an initiative called SF Next, where they help come up with practical solutions to our city's biggest problems. The editor from The Chronicle who oversaw this project will also join us. That's right after the break, so stay with us. Hey, this is One Way Possible, your fellow music traveler. Join me weeknights from 8 to 10 p.m. as we cross genres, generations, and go all across the musical map, discovering forgotten favorites, future favorites, and all the journeys in between. That's Monday through Friday nights, 8 to 10 p.m., right here on 91.7 KALW and KALW.org. Join us for the ride. KALW is hosting a live, free, in-person town hall conversation this Tuesday evening at our new event space in downtown San Francisco. The subject, the future of Bay Area housing. Join me, Ben Trefney, in conversation with Assemblymember Matt Haney, Spurs' Sujata Srivastava, and Mission Local reporter Annika Holm, and you. It's Tuesday, November 28th at 6 p.m., live at 220 Montgomery Street, just two blocks from the Montgomery Barton Muni Station. See you there. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. We want you to be part of this next conversation. We're going to be talking about SF Next, a project spearheaded by the San Francisco Chronicle, where everyday residents came together to propose practical solutions to San Francisco's biggest problems. After almost two years of community gatherings around the city, the Chronicle recently published the 10 big ideas that came out of these community meetings. So have you followed along with the Chronicle's SF Next project and have an opinion to share on one of the proposals? We would love to hear from you. Do you have your own big idea to share? You can give us a call. We'll open the phone lines for this next segment. You can dial us at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-TALK. You can also email us at stateofthebay at kalw.org. So let's discuss the Chronicle's SF Next project. Project. According to the Chronicle, the goal of SF Next was, quote, to convene community members for robust conversations about the challenges facing the city. And after 18 months of community gatherings and speaking to over a thousand residents, the Chronicle recently published what they're calling the 10 big ideas that came out of these meetings. So, here to give us greater insight into how this project took shape is the Chronicle editor who oversees the SF Next project, Jonathan Krim. Welcome to State of the Bay, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Glad you can join us. So you serve as an editor at the Chronicle and oversee the SF Next project, as I mentioned. Can you briefly just tell us what the project is? Sure. It's really 
twofold. We're we're definitely interested in helping the community to solve the many challenges that are facing San Francisco right now. Um, I think we we feel pretty strongly that there's a a newer role for local media uh, that involves facilitation uh, of uh, community conversation and problem solving uh, that pushes beyond just providing information, which is our traditional role. Uh, but the second thing really is um, bringing people together who do not necessarily share the same worldview. Um, this is a very polarized city, as uh, you know, and that's one of the biggest problems facing this town, not only the more tangible things that we see uh, in front of us. Uh, the polarization has just gotten, I think, mm -hmm. extremely serious, and it gets in the way. Uh, the whole city is really sort of paralyzed by a lot of it. So we felt very strongly that anyone who was going to participate in our process needed to be able, willing, and interested in sitting next to people who uh, very much want to solve San Francisco's problems and are willing to work with whomever in order to make that happen. And we, we enforced some, some really strict guidelines about uh, making sure that everyone's treated respectfully and, and people are open to ideas. And we actually did not have to do a lot of that. It just happened naturally. And we had a lot of meetings, not just with this current group, uh, with people who, after the meeting was over, came up to us and said, you know, that was pretty refreshing to just be able to have these conversations with people. And they got intense sometimes, but they were always respectful. And a lot of relationships formed that I think people never expected. Yeah, it's our own little version of bipartisan consensus and solutions, thinking about it at the city level and comparing that to the polarization at the national level. Well, Jonathan, you talked about how this is a bit of an unusual role for a news media company to engage in. Were there any models that you look to? Is this happening anywhere else around the country where you could incorporate some of those lessons into putting the SF Next project together? There are several local journalism initiatives that involve community engagement. Um, I think we pushed a little beyond a lot of them. Um, we did a couple things. Of course, we had a coverage team that, that was a big part of this. We did major polling last year um, that, were, that was one of the biggest polls we've ever heard of for local issues in San Francisco. Uh, and that helped guide the, the topics and the issues that we had people working on. Uh, but we also um, were committed to getting people to actually participate in problem solving, not just come in, vent about their experiences, talk about what they think and what the problems are, but folks who actually want to put in some of the work. And uh, these folks who are on with us tonight have done an amazing job doing that. They spent the last three to four months um, meeting regularly, talking with each other, working with us on on sort of all of the coordination issues that needed to happen. And it was a fantastic thing to watch. Well, Jonathan, as you mentioned, we've got some of the folks who participated. We're going to speak to some of those solutions. But before we get to them, I just wanted to ask, how did you find the participants who helped create the 10 big ideas? So we started by 
having a lot of community meetings with people from all walks. Um, we first started with off the record small group meetings that were just cohorts from from similar places. So we had tech folks come in one time. We had um, <clears throat> folks from the arts come in. We had folks from small businesses come in. Um, we did that with about 12 or 15 different cohorts. And throughout all of those, we were sort of privately scouting and watching for folks who we could tell were going to fit the model that we were trying to create. Um, and then we had larger meetings as well. And we had a big conference last year and culminated in another one this year. But we were, again, always watching for folks. And so we invited uh, a set of people and then we encouraged them to bring other names and folks to the table um, that we might think would be good for the project. And so we we did a lot of that as well. And we, of course, relied on... <clears throat> excuse me, we relied on the Chronicle staff as well. Um, a lot of the reporters and editors know folks in the community who, again, um, fit the mold and, and the sort of sensibility and personality that we were looking for to make this thing work. So let's talk about a few of the 10 big ideas themselves. As you mentioned, we've got a few of the people involved here, three to be exact, and let's go through with them. Uh, go through them one by one. Although I will say we don't have time to dig into all ten proposals, but you can find a link on our website for all the big ideas. So first, <clears throat> let's start by introducing Tom Radulovich, Executive Director of Livable City, who participated in this process. So welcome, Tom. Uh, thanks for having me. So, Tom, you're one of the 30 panelists who came together in the group that uh, Jonathan just described over multiple months. And you primarily contributed to the idea named the Big Wiggle aimed at revitalizing downtown. Can you explain what the Big Wiggle is? Uh, sure. For uh, Well, for San Franciscans uh, who, who bike around town, uh, there's already a wiggle. Um, it's a zigzag route uh, through Lower Haight and DeBose Triangle to kind of uh, allow you to bike from, you know, my my neighborhood, the Mission, or uh, eastern side of town to the western side of town. So uh, looking at downtown, uh, you know, I think a lot of us thought, well, we need better public spaces downtown. We were looking at other cities, um, you know, investing in, you know, creating great walkable streets, greening their old city centers, um, you know, turning these big one-way car sewers back into two-way streets that better serve uh, neighborhood uh, small businesses and so on. So uh, we said, all right, well, let's focus on public space, you know, uh, things that'll bring people together, uh, things that'll make downtown a real, uh, a place worth spending time or spending more time, uh, you know, bring back the joy of people watching, walking, cycling, etc. consistent with our climate plan, consistent um, with this goal of reviving downtown. So uh, we're looking at, you know, different routes. And then uh, Derek, actually, uh, Derek uh, Oyang, brilliant guy, came up with the idea of, well, let's let's kind of create a zigzag, a, a step um, really strongly visual uh, through downtown from the Embarcadero all the way to Civic Center. So uh, it's a, a route that would zigzag north of Market Street. The idea is these streets would be green, really people-oriented, inviting. They change character. Um, you know, some of the streets are wider, some of them are narrower, some are in the financial district, some are um, 
in Union Square, or we have a performing arts promenade uh, proposed in the Civic Center. So uh, I would change characters, you move through neighborhoods, but it would be a way to walk through. So yeah, we felt it was strong conceptually and uh, just kind of a great idea uh, to kind of throw out there and hopefully get the city thinking about public spaces uh, in the downtown. So, Tom, is the idea that they would paint a, a green lane to kind of create this continuous big wiggle or how, how would it look to the uh, average person sit down at that area? Yeah, good question. I, I think we were thinking um, it would be good to do it tentatively, like use paint, use, uh, you know, some of the techniques that have been used on uh, JFK Drive and Golden Gate Park and so on. So use paint, planters, things that kind of really low cost um, can be easily done, uh, but change the character and nature of the street. Uh, lead with those, uh, get people used to the idea, let people experiment with configurations, but then maybe someday we'd spend some big money and remake these streets in these public spaces. And Tom, I mentioned that you are executive director of Livable City, a nonprofit. It aims to make San Francisco a more beautiful, accessible city. Can you talk about how your expertise came into play in terms of creating this idea to revitalize downtown? Sure. Well, I'm, I'm actually not executive director. I'm policy director these days. And um, yeah, it came into, we, we, we do a lot of events in the street. We, we do the Sunday Streets program kind of now in its 15th year. Uh, which is, you know, transforming streets just for a few hours. Uh, we've done a lot of work uh, during the pandemic, helping small business, you know, doing events in the Bayview, uh, Western Edition, Chinatown, different neighborhoods. So trying to create uh, people-oriented space back when we were physically distancing. So we're real believers in, in the power of public space to bring people together uh, and the possibilities of transforming it uh, in ways that make us a greener city, a friendlier city, uh, a more lively and vital city. So, uh, yeah, it just it felt like, uh, you know, kind of the culmination of a lot of work that we've done for a long time. And, you know, thinking about downtown, which is, I think, front of everybody's mind in City Hall. Um, yeah, w was exciting. And, and you know, some of my colleagues, my, my colleague Katie uh, did the Bunger and Beats downtown. So there's been some great experimentation. Some folks are already taking initiative in downtown to try and bring people down uh, and, uh, you know, transform the way they think about it, make it a fun place. Uh, but uh, this, yeah, felt like, well, let's, let's begin to take that energy and, and, uh, and put it into a, a bolder plan. And Tom, I know your group was focused on really a vision for downtown. I'm curious if everyone on the SF next panel had a shared vision for downtown. What was it like working with them? What was the sort of ultimate, vision that that your group came up with uh good question I, I don't know that there was an ultimate vision i mean you know we had folks from tech who are very, very keen for the next tech boom uh i think we had folks uh from the arts and so on that were saying well maybe a more arts focused downtown uh housing focused downtown etc uh, i think points of agreement though were that I, I everyone seemed to feel that downtown was a little bit of a one-trick pony it'd become a bit of a office monoculture a lot of the things that happen downtown, you know, um, uh, art studios, um, a lot of the retail, a lot of restaurants, um, places to hang out had gone over the years. They it had it, become a little monotone. So I think everyone was on the same page of we want a little bit more of a 24-hour downtown, uh, a place with arts and culture, place where more people live. So this, you know, office to housing uh, conversion is interesting to folks and so on. And then um, also public spaces that would support that, you know, so it really shouldn't be just about shooting commuter, commuters out of from downtown garages 
uh, back to their home on the peninsula, more uh, these should be streets as the public spaces where yeah. you'd want to be, you'd want to spend time, uh, a neighborhood you'd want to live in, uh, and so on. So, so I think it was more of a a mixed use twenty four hour downtown was division, but but we didn't go real far beyond that. And, and uh, if you're just joining he, us. The, Oh, Jonathan, yeah, give me one second. Sorry, I was reintroduced the program here. This is State yeah. of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7 KALW, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Ethan Elkind, and we're discussing resident-generated ideas to fix San Francisco. And if you have an idea for how to fix something wrong with the city, we'd love to hear from you. Do you think everyday residents here have a way to get involved in solving our city's issues? You can join us by calling 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-TALK. You can also email us at stateofthebay at klw.org. And we are joined by a number of the panelists and the editor at The Chronicle, Jonathan Krim, who was just about to say something. And actually, Jonathan, I wanted to ask you, just given the idea we just heard from Tom about the big wiggle and ideas for reimagining downtown, what is the role now for The Chronicle with an idea like the big wiggle, do you do anything to push this idea forward or do you feel like your job is done once an idea like the big wiggle is out there and, and you hope others maybe pick up the torch if it has legs? Yeah, that's a, a really good question. First, I just wanted to expand a little bit on your previous question and say that there were, I think out of the 10, there are four proposals that are downtown related in some way or another. So uh, they're very different from each other. Um, but um, I think it's a testimony to uh, a shared sense of real importance uh, that the downtown uh, has um, mm -hmm. for the city. I mean, it's responsible for roughly 75% of the city's GDP. And if, if the downtown doesn't recover, uh, we're going to start to see, and we already are starting to see some significant budget impact uh, at the city level that is going to have a have an effect on services for everyone, not just people who go downtown. Um, to your other question, uh, it's a it's a really good one and a really tough one for us. Um, we are determined to spread these 10 ideas as far and wide as we can. Um, we're we've obviously published everything both digitally and and in print. Um, we have a plan to take some of the special sections and put them in libraries and places where people can have access to them. Uh, we did not put this content behind our paywall. Um, so it's the, the job of spreading the word of these is continuing social media, obviously, and so on. Um, but it's, it's tough for us to then uh, do much more in the way of pushing a policy up through the doors of city hall. Um, mm -hmm. We have an opinion section. They operate independently from us. Uh, if they decide that they want to pick up the, the cudgel on one or more of these things, mm -hmm. that's certainly up to them, but, but we don't yeah. coordinate that with them. So no, I appreciate you clarifying that. And it, it makes sense. So we'll see how these ideas play out. Let's move on to another big idea. Uh, Joy Jackson Morgan, a second generation native of the Bayview Hunters Point neighborhood, also executive director of the third street youth center and clinic is joining us now. So welcome to state of the Bay joy. Thank you so much for having me. It's a true honor to be here tonight. Well, we're so pleased you could join us. So, Joy, I know you worked on a proposal to help fill vacant city jobs. Can you explain your big idea called Civic Hall? 
Yeah. So there's a 4,000 job vacancy in San Francisco. Let me say that again. 4,000 job vacancy um, in San Francisco. And so um, doing work in social services and and working with the unhoused, um, particularly with, with young people, and knowing that they need access to social services, we set out to figure out, um, you know, how can we get more eligibility workers online um, for the city, particularly for the Lower Polk Navigation Center, which we run, and found out that there's a 400 job vacancy for eligibility workers across the city. So that's 10% of the of the vacancies. And so, you know, started to think about you know, what would it take to get more San Franciscans employed um, with these job vacancies? And we found out that the eligibility worker um, job only requires a high school diploma or a GED and passing the civic exam. So with that in mind, um, this was already sort of brewing <laughs> in my head. And so when Jonathan and Noah came uh, to visit me about SF Next, this is one of the things that were top of mind for me. Um, really addressing the needs of um, the job vacancy here in San Francisco. So it's, it's, it's call, an amazing point that there's this many vacancies. Can you describe a bit about how Civic Hall would work then? How would it help match people to these these uh, openings? Yeah, so our public library um, is a wealth of knowledge and it has the space, the technology, the trust and the shared mission um, to to help address these issues. And so we wanted to use... Our library, particularly the main library for this this pilot of Civic Hall, to be able to um, bridge the gap. The library has access to practice exams and and exam material for the civic exam. So why not create a test prep for these civic exams to help more San Franciscans be a part of the solution of helping to fix San Francisco by getting these jobs? So you know, having about a hundred folks go through a program where it's like SAT prep, but really also focusing on the soft skills, like interviewing skills, how to keep a civic job, um, partnering with CBOs, helping them uh, really learn how to be a part of San Francisco again, particularly we were thinking more so like with our, our unhoused folks, some of our seniors folks reentering into the, the job field, new graduates from, from college, really focusing on them to help them get this bridge to these jobs. So having this test prep doesn't lower our standards or expectations for these jobs, but really, again, help San Franciscans join in helping to heal our city. And Joy, I just have to ask, what motivated you to want to participate in the SF Next project with the Chronicle? I think I just love talking about my city and 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 trying to help. Like being born and raised here, these issues hit me harder than probably most. And I really want to just see San Francisco shine bright again. I want to bring back the love and the positivity and the productivity that our city once had. Not. Not to say that it doesn't have it now, but just want to see yeah. see us shine. 
Well, it's wonderful that you feel that way. And I hope more people feel that way. And I'm glad this project is giving someone like you a chance to get your ideas out to a larger audience. But let's hear from our final representative of some of the big ideas here. That's Mark Nagel, who's a co-founder of Rescue SF, a citywide coalition of residents advocating for compassionate and effective solutions to address homelessness. So, Mark, you were involved with an idea to improve how our city government works. You're proposing that we implement a new performance management system. So what exactly is a performance management system and how do you think it would help our city run better? Hi, Ethan. Thanks for having me. We all know that San Francisco has a lot of crises on our streets, right? We have homelessness, open air drugs, downtown collapse. But the real crisis also is in City Hall. We asked ourselves, why is it so hard for San Francisco to solve hard problems. The one example that jumped out at us was the Tenderloin Emergency Initiative that the mayor launched back in December of 2021. It's a lot of fanfare, she had special powers, a lot of resources were thrown at the Tenderloin. Six months later, the initiative just died a quiet death. Uh, and the reason why is because of a just a management failure in City Hall. There was no written plan, uh, there were not clear targets and goals for what the city was trying to achieve, a lack of follow-up, a lack of review of what was actually happening, just basic management practices that weren't being followed. So as a result, a lot of activity happened in the Tenderloin, and there was a lot of good that was done, but the Tenderloin didn't fundamentally change. And that was a real a real tremendous failure. So as the city continues to grapple with big problems, we think the city needs to really reform how it manages the business of government. Uh, it doesn't have to invent something from scratch. There are practices that have been around for about 40 years, going back to the New York City Police Department uh, and then the city of Baltimore, and then spread across to other organizations at the federal level, states and local governments. So it's not reinventing the wheel here, making something up. These are practices, basic management practices that have been tried other places. So you asked, what is performance management? It starts really basic with simple um, elements. You need clear goals, what to accomplish that are specific um, targets that are measurable, strategies for achieving those specific goals with uh, elements in the strategies that are also measurable for what this what the government should be doing in order to achieve those 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 goals. And that sounds like a lot of strategic plans that go nowhere, right? And governments and all kinds of organizations do plans that fail. But what you need to, what what you add to this though is a process or how to take the ideas and the plan and make it work. The core to that is a regular meeting where the mayor's office meets with department heads to review the strategies, to review the plan, and see how we're doing. So the regular, they're measuring constantly the results, they're coming together and asking, how are we doing? Look at, look at the results, how does it compare to our targets? Are we on plan, are we on track or not? If not, why not? And those why not questions, as, which, as, as we see in all kinds of these meetings that happen elsewhere, drive the conversation to deeper and deeper levels to investigate what's happening in our departments, what's happening on our streets, what is government doing, what's working, what's not working. And so those conversations lead to a lot of I don't knows and departments have to dig deeper and deeper to find answers, but that's where that innovation then happens and roadblocks then are, are pushed aside. So it's a it's taking best practices from other governments, very simple things that are easy to understand. Uh, it's easy to implement. It's very hard work to do. Um, so the city has to be committed to this. All we need though, is just the agreement between the mayor's office and the controller's office and a few extra staffers to get started. So it's easy to kick it off, but this could have a huge impact on improving the effectiveness of our city government. Yeah, Mark, this seems incredibly practical and like a low cost type of solution. Do you get the sense there's political motivation to get this done? There is, there actually is. Um, unfortunately, there's uh, there are people in the city who, City Hall, who are really smart, who have experience, have seen in the past, 
efforts like this have been tried and have, have not worked well, out well for lack of, of planning. Things like this can be done and have been done uh, as political theater to like show and pretend that we're doing a good job, but it's not actually very substantive. So I think there's just a concern that if the city were to do something like this, they want to make sure that it's done well and um, that people's you know time isn't wasted. So I think we're trying to get that together and and, and get agreement um, across the board in City Hall. You know, people in the city in City Hall want it want to do better. We just have to have the political will to to do this and to you know roll, have them roll up our sleeves. Yeah, it's also um, the one thing that the one thing that's like a, a double edged sword here is that. If you do a project like this, it's it's more accountability, right? There's more transparency, more accountability, holding people uh, responsible for uh, results, and that's that's scary to people in government, right? But I think that's what what the residents of the city want, and that's what we need to make sure that government delivers better results. Yeah. Well, we're just about out of time, but we do have a caller, Chris from Rio Vista. So, Chris, welcome to State of the Bay. Hey, thank you. Yeah, thank you for joining us. What's your question for the group here? So. I, you know, I grew up in San Francisco. I went to high school down there, and uh, I went to go visit just this last weekend, and I was downtown on the Embarcadero, and it, it was just so weird. Like, I I couldn't find anywhere even just to use the restroom, like, and nobody was welcoming. Everywhere had restrooms closed down, and, you know, like, I know this is a huge issue down there because there's just, there's human feces all over the place now, and so it's like, really getting some of these buildings that are like putting in really expensive condos and stuff to at least have somewhere for public restrooms to be around town because it was just absolutely horrendous just me who would gladly pay patronage to the restroom at that point to find a restroom let me just uh turn this over to our our uh the editor of the chronicle overseeing the project jonathan crimps i think this speaks to the larger issue around the sort of lack of vibrancy in downtown and jonathan i don't know if you or anyone in the project got involved in thinking about bathrooms but i know you're talking about generally revitalizing downtown any thoughts in response to chris's comment here yeah and you know there's been a lot of controversy around bathrooms in this town and and some of the proposed um newfangled restrooms that had incredibly high price tags associated with them and as a result have not gotten very far. We didn't have a group that focused on bathrooms. Um, maybe we should have. Um, it's it's definitely an issue. I mean, I, I don't, there are a couple of cities that do this well, but it's a tough one. It's, it's expensive to keep them clean um, and uh, and it's expensive to keep them safe, actually. Um, and so I don't really have uh, a whole lot of good ideas on this. And like I said, we we did not do um, we did not do any work on that particular problem. Well, thanks to Chris for calling in. Like I say, we're almost out of time here. But Jonathan, I'll just ask you one last question, which is what's next for SF next? Do you see these ideas kind of taking on a life of their own, maybe in the mayor's race. Do you plan to run this series again? What's what's in store here? Uh, I think the Chronicle is uh, very committed to very active 2024 coverage that um, is going to be focused around um, races and elections, but is going to be very issue-based. Um, I don't think uh, there's a, a real plan at this point for specifically – uh, what will happen with SF next? I think there's, you know, we had some budget commitments for this that have run out. And so I think at this point, the the newsroom and, and the uh, 
the executive staff is going to have to sit down and think about how do we continue to do community engagement and this kind of work, which we feel has has yielded some really, really good results um, and do it in a way that um, that we can afford to. Well, Jonathan Krim, Chronicle Editor, overseeing the SF Next Project. Thank you for coming on State of the Bay and describing the work here. And I definitely commend the listeners to look at the full suite of ideas. I also want to thank Tom Radulovich, Policy Director of Livable City, Joy Jackson Morgan, Executive Director of Third Street Youth Center and Clinic, and Mark Nagel, Co-Founder of Rescue SF. I want to thank all of you for coming on and giving us some insights into these big ideas. And we'll keep our fingers crossed that people will put these into practice. So thank you all so much. Thank you. And coming up after the break, we will check in with local baker celebrity Azikwe Anderson to see how his business is coping after a recent burglary. And we'll also get some tips for holiday baking. Stay tuned on State of the Bay. We'll be right back. This week on The Arts, you'll hear about San Francisco Opera's production of The Elixir of Love from its scene-stealing star, tenor Penny Potty. Plus, Guys and Dolls at SF Playhouse, a holiday mezzo mashup at Cole Mansion, and Philippa Kelly brings us Panto Sleeping Beauty in the Presidio. I'm David LaTulipe. It's On The Arts, our weekly radio magazine of the performing arts, Wednesday afternoon at 4. Join us. Welcome back to State of the Bay. This is Ethan Elkind. So earlier this year, my co-host Grace Wan sat down with Ezekwe Anderson, the founder of Rise Up Bakery, to hear how he turned his shelter-in-place sourdough project into a successful micro-bakery with a mission. The business has been booming. Customers seek out its loaves of bread featuring flavors like gochujang, ube, curry leaves, and sesame. But on the morning of Tuesday, November 7th, Ezekwe woke up to some heartbreaking news. He learned that his bakery had been burglarized overnight, and we've invited Ezekwe back to see how he and his business are faring now. And since it's holiday time, we're also going to ask him for some holiday baking tips. So Ezekwe Anderson, welcome back to State of the Bay. Thank you for having me. And I'm just so sorry to hear about the burglary. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah, um... We, you know, we start kind of early. So um, on one of the evenings that we don't have our night baker, um, one of our lead bakers went in at four in the morning. And when he got there, the entire roll-up door was open. Um, and uh, he started texting me. He was like, hey, you know, I don't really feel safe going in here. I don't know exactly what's going on. Um, but he he pushed in and kind of looked around and made sure no one was there, which was really brave of him. Um, shout out to JJ. Uh, and uh, then he started texting me. and was like, you know, you got to get down here. Um, the You know, we've been robbed. And so I got there uh, as quick as I could. And it literally, from the moment I got there until about, I don't know, 10 a.m., it was just a blur of, you know, it was like dominoes you one thing happens, which leads to the next thing, which leads to the next thing. So um, we found out that because someone had actually come in and went into our walk-in, um, we had to throw away hundreds and hundreds of loaves. We make everything three days in advance. So yeah, it was a, uh, it went from like, Oh, they stole of all of our computers and all of our cash boxes and all of our yeah. um, iPads that we use to go to all of our farmer's markets to, 
oh, now we have to throw away every single thing that that wasn't tied down in the in the fridge, and that was just a little bit too much for my mind to bear. Um, yeah, it was. It's it's been kind of hectic. I I re I uh, put out something on Instagram, which is kind of where most people found out about me and my bakery, <clears throat> and um, I got a real resounding like you know thousands of people reached out to us and told us how much we mean to them and people started making donations and so it's been kind of crazy we still got to do a lot to deal with uh the insurance and and all that stuff which I've never really done um but so far uh we we remade all of the all of the bread that we needed to make <clears throat> to get back out to all of our shops and and all the stores that count on us uh yeah it's been it's been a crazy and then and then to follow that up was holiday so it was like all of that was going right into thanksgiving and and all of our biggest time of the year so it was definitely hectic well i'm really sorry again about that that must have been just incredibly upsetting and just physically and emotionally demanding because i it sounds like you were trying to fill orders as usual so how did you and your staff pull together to try to meet the commitments you'd already made even after this burglary well i mean there was um you know since we make everything so many days in advance, there definitely was this like band everybody together, you know, work some, uh, some extra late nights and having everyone come in to try to, you know, there was actually a real camaraderie of like, we're not going to let them stop us and, and we're going to, you know, try our best. Um, and I was really, really proud of my crew. You know, you, you hope that what you put your heart and your soul into and you put it out to the world and you hope it's received a certain way. But when people really hit you back with like, you mean a lot to us and we want to be there. We had a bunch of um, other people in the service industry restaurants, like call us up and say, Hey, we know you guys are burning the midnight oil. How about we just bring you a staff meal? They like brought us pizzas and things like that. Uh, so yeah, it was, I think the thing I learned most is, is, the community that we're so fortunate to be a part of is like really, really caring and wants to see us succeed. And so I feel like when you got people in your corner like that, it's, it's a lot easier to like dust yourself off and like say, okay, yeah, let's, let's just dig deep, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it is wonderful and heartening to hear about the positive support you've gotten in response to this tragic burglar burglary that you experienced but let's move on to the fun part, which doesn't all have to be doom and gloom. Yeah, it's not, it's not doom about... and gloom. It's not doom and gloom. <laughs> so I want to talk about the special loaves that you have planned for the holidays. So let's start there. Anything on tap that you want to let listeners know about coming up for the holidays? Um, well, we just uh, we just got finished. It seems like it was literally just today, yesterday, but um, it was a couple of days ago. We just finished uh, Cranberry Grand Marnier um orange uh orange zest and warm spices so it was like our holiday loaf for uh thanksgiving and it was really meant to uh have like you know nice big turkey sandwiches the day after thanksgiving is kind of what we had hoped to you know kind of inspire uh and then moving into christmas or um uh yeah the the 25th uh, holiday season in general. Um, that to me, my family has always uh, made a big gumbo. I'm from New Orleans, and so everybody makes gumbo during the holiday. So instead of it being warm spices and like peppermint and stuff like that, I'm gonna make a a gumbo loaf. So we'll be 
starting to kind of pre-sale that. And that has like Louisiana hot sausage and all of the Trinity, like, um, uh, and it'll, it'll have everything except crab probably. So, uh, we'll have bacon and we'll be cooking down everything. And, and a lot of people think like, I don't understand how that I've had a lot of people go, whoa, 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 what? Um, but yeah, basically all of the flavors from my childhood, which, um, feel great to me is what I'm incorporating in. And, uh, we made it last year for the first time. And then I've got a couple, couple tricks up my sleeve to like even spice it up a little more. Well, it's always a challenge hosting this show around dinner time and hearing people <laughs> like you talking about this really wonderful sounding food. I also wanted to ask about beyond the holiday loaves you've got coming up. Just what are some of the most popular uh, types of, of breads and loaves that uh, that your customers are seeking out from you? Well, um, we have our ube loaf, which is kind of a claim to fame. It's this beautiful, um, it's a Filipino purple yam, if you don't know what ube is. Um, it's, uh, it's very visually striking, but it's also beautiful. Like it lends itself really well to sweet. Um, we, uh, have made a collaboration loaf with like Spanish tables. So we have like a paella loaf, um, and that has, uh, garlic and all the paella seasonings and, um, uh, piquillo peppers, uh, which is a red pepper, um, also with, uh, some chorizo bilbao. Uh, in it. Um, we also have our uh, masala loaf, which is like our love letter to India. And that's got uh, masala that we make with curry leaves and cumin and serrano peppers and onion and uh, turmeric. And we cook that all down and then uh, has fresh cilantro in it. And we mix it all in as this beautiful, vibrant, bright yellow, beautiful loaf that is very, very pungent. Um, so yes, yeah, so, I mean, we just try to incorporate all of the, the kind of weave all the fabrics of, uh, the different kind of folks that live in the Bay, uh, cause we want it to feel inclusive, like sourdough in general, um, should represent where it comes from. And we're so many different, such a diaspora of people here. So we really focus on kind of celebrating the, the diversity and just the difference that all makes us cool, you know? And Ezekiel, where can listeners find your bread if they want to buy some of what you're describing here? Well, um, you can find us on Instagram uh, and you can buy directly from us and come and say what's up and pick it up at the bakery. Um, you can also find us at um, the Clement Street uh, Farmer's Market, the West Oakland Farmer's Market, the Grand Lake Farmer's Market, the Ferry Building in San Francisco Farmer's Market, um, uh, the Marin Civic Center. So we're at like seven or eight uh, farmer's markets a week. Uh, and then we are in a slew of seven day a week, like uh, Luke's Local, Rainbow Grocery, Buy Right, um, Gus's, uh, Berkeley Bowl over in the East Bay, um, and then a bunch of sandwich shops as well. So you can, yeah, we're, we're, so, we're been growing a lot this year. So we're, well, that's we're very fortunate. It, absolutely. You, Congratulations on all the success. Ezekwe Anderson, founder of Rise Up Bakery. Sorry again about the burglary, but great to hear about your holiday plans and that listeners can find your product in so many places around the Bay. Thank you for joining us. It, it won't stop us. We're, we're going to keep trucking along. 
Absolutely. That's the spirit we like to hear. Well, that's State of the Bay this week. We hope you'll join us next Monday at 6 when we'll talk about the latest in the San Francisco Bay Area. For more information about this and other State of the Bay shows, you can visit our State of the Bay page on KLW.org. And if you have any questions or comments about anything you heard tonight, just let us know. You can email us anytime at stateofthebay at KALW.org. Tonight's show was produced by Katie Colley and Chris Mooney. It was engineered by David Kwan, and D Minor was our board operator. I'm Ethan Elkind. Good night, and thanks so much for listening.